0: Well, good morning. My name is Jeff and one of the shepherds here and uh, we're going to be picking up um, where we left off last week, uh, jumping into Mark 6. Just before we do though, uh, we want to welcome any of you that are brand new. Um, In order to do this, we want to single you out and we're going to have a spotlight on and everybody's going to point and laugh at you. Um, Not likely, actually what we're going to ask is for the ushers to come down, they're going to be bringing uh, a journal, a journal is just simply it's got the the book of Mark in it with some room to write in it and uh, if you just simply wave your hands, make eye contact, um, act like your, your favorite Disney character, whatever it is, get their attention But uh, they're gonna have not only that journal, but also um, a a free gift for you. And it's just simply for a free drink in the well. Now I know that if I asked how many of you are new, very few people raise their hand because they're like, well, it all depends. And if I tell you now that you're gonna get a free gift, then some of you that have been here for 20 weeks are like, well, I'm made new every morning, so here I am, you know, like I'll take one. If you feel uncomfortable raising your hand, being singled out, then as you exit, as soon as you go out the doors, immediately to your right, is uh, just right against the wall, is our welcome team. They would love to meet you. They, they, will, they will dish out some free gifts as well. So um, if you want to grab one of those, we'd love to meet you and welcome you here. Uh, secondly... Um, it is a Veterans Day weekend, and it's not so much that it's a weekend that that it's that it's three day weekend or whatever. It's more the idea that we stop and that that very value that makes somebody a veteran, the concept that you have chosen to serve, to sacrifice, to be away from your family, to literally put your life out there at a point where you might lose your life. It is a value that Christ himself says there is no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. And so we recognize that those who have done that have chosen to take that risk, to serve in that way, are indeed our heroes. So I just want us to stop and say, how many of you are veterans? Would you please raise your hand? If you've served and we've got some there and there and there. We just wanna thank you for that. One of my favorite quotes from Will Rogers is that uh, we can't all be heroes. Some of us has to stand on the curb and clap as they go by. And so thank you for letting us just celebrate you and uh, just our gratefulness for you. As we jump into Mark, um, when we, we're going to do Mark 6 this morning, but but the reality is there are no chapters in Mark when it was first written. It is just the story, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And in this sense, it's like having a, a long piece of French bread and you just decide, I, I'm going to cut it right, right here and we're going to take out a slice right out of the middle. That's what we're doing this morning. We're just taking a slice out of this longer story. So there's some that looks like the loaf just before and some that's going to look just like the loaf after. That's chapter five and chapter 7, if you don't follow the analogy, Um, But the idea is, is we're going to get this one slice as we look at chapter six. It's going to cover six stories. And these six stories, we just heard the first story with the reading of the scripture and when Jesus goes to Nazareth. But the whole question here is, who is Jesus? And when we look at Mark, Mark is dealing with the identity of who Jesus is. And we're going to get a picture of some of what Jesus, who Jesus says he is, some of what others say he is. Some of what scripture explains, and we 're going to see a lot of people who have different perspectives of who he is and most of them wrong, but that 's going to all show up and just spoiler alert just in case you haven 't heard Jesus is the Son of God so that's you now know that 's where we 're headed, and he reveals that and in this this morning 's passage we 're going to see that pointed out in, in multiple ways. So this first one is just this idea that he goes into Nazareth and as he does so, they recognize him, they know him, he's from their town and uh, this idea that sometimes somebody is familiar to somebody changes how we look at them like we we carry the baggage that we had of them before of whatever we thought of them baggage is probably not a good word memories experiences but things of that we knew about them before we carry it with them until we see them again and then we sort of pick up where we left off or at least where we thought we were Um, There's a story out of Florence, uh, one of the the big um, bell towers there in Florence is Giotto 's campanelli and giotto 's Campanelli is a huge tower. It took literally um, over a hundred years to build. It started with marble stones on the bottom all the way up and huge bells. But if you go to Florence today, you would still hear this Campanelli tolling the bells. The challenge with the the bells is that they 've got to all be just right, and whoever does that has to be trained on how to ring the bells they 've got to be. pull pull the rope down just a certain length to get just the right tone for just the right length of time, and you've got to do it right on the right mark of the clock so that it's not early and it's not late, and so there's even an association of these guys and gals that learn how to do this. Well, recently with the Campanelli, they had had a a vacancy, and they needed a new person to, to do it, so they... Put out the application or f- were taking applications and one particular person applied for the job. He came, the priest met him and they were walking up the tower and he was showing them where the clocks were so they'd know exactly when it was time to do the bells. The schedule was set there for special events and that here's where the, the cleaning stuff is kept and they're working their way up. They finally get to the top to where the, the bells are. And as the priest opens the door, they're getting up on the last steps. This, this applicant, trips on the very last step, stumbles and falls into the bell and he hits his head right on the bell. And it literally just cuts open his forehead. He, he It knocks him out cold and he just falls to the ground right there. And so the priest calls the paramedics. The paramedics come to try to help him and see what's wrong. And uh, they look at him. He's unconscious and as he's laying there, the, the paramedic looks up at the priest and he says, do you even know his name? And he says, no, but his face sure rings a bell. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I, I know that's worth the price of admission right there, right? Um, but it's not done there because obviously at this point the guy comes to and as he kind of shakes it off. He turns around and the priest goes, oh, I'm so glad for a moment there I thought you were a dead ringer. Um, all right, I'll move on. That's it. I, I'm done. Um, here's the thing, though: we recognize people. Like, there's people we've seen before, and there's familiarity. And this is what's happening with Jesus as he comes into Nazareth. He comes into his hometown, and they're looking at him and going, "We know you. We've seen you. You, you are the the carpenter. You are the son of Mary. You are the brother of." Of, of Joseph and Judas and James and so they go through it and they're like, we know you. Here's the point. Here's the picture. As we start to go through these stories, what we're going to find is that we're going to have part of Jesus revealed and then we're going to get a picture of how other people see Jesus and what they think of him. And what I'm going to challenge you on is in each of these stories is to think about getting a heart for Jesus. And in getting a heart for Jesus, we're going to be looking for one character trait that you might want to take on, something that you might want to pick. As we do the six of these, I'm not asking you to take all six. That would be wonderful. You would be godly. You would be most like Jesus. We'll give you a gold star. The point isn't to get all six. The point is to stop and say, where is my heart right now? What is the one thing God would have me to do? So as we go through these, just be praying and thinking and, and asking God, God, what is it that you would want me to learn from these passages? That I, from these stories, I might be able to draw something out. In this particular case, right off the bat, the, the thing that happens in this passage is is that as he, he comes into his hometown on the Sabbath, he's teaching, and they are astonished, and they say, where did this man get these things? What is, this, what is the wisdom to him, given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about in the villages teaching. This concept that as you look at it, what's happening here is that we're going to start with this question of he could do no mighty works there. And you're thinking, what happened? Why is it that Jesus is suddenly limited? Isn't he all powerful? Isn't he able to do whatever he wants to do? And the answer to that question is yes, he is able. So that when you look at this passage, what it means is previously in chapter five, if you remember the crowds were so big, they were so mighty that what happens is, is when the woman touched the hem of his garment, Jesus felt power flow out of him. That when that happened, the disciples, and he turned around and said, who touched me? And they kind of laugh at him like, what do you mean who touched you? There's like all these people, the, the crowds are huge. They're all around you. When he gets to Nazareth, the crowds aren't there. The crowds don't show up. Why aren't they there? That's the question. What's going on in Nazareth that's different from every other place? Because after he leaves, we get back to the crowds again. In fact, we're going to be talking about the feeding of the 5,000 in just a few minutes. And that's 5,000 people. So we know there's mighty crowds before and mighty crowds after. It is in this story that there aren't mighty crowds. And this is why he can't do the mighty works. He's still able to heal But there's just no mighty crowd. There's not him doing mighty works because there's very few people there. Now, mind you, these people that knew Jesus, do we really think that they didn't have sickness, that they didn't have illness, that they didn't have brokenness, that they didn't have struggles in their life, that they didn't have a need for Jesus? Yeah, they did. So what's going on? What's going on is that they have a familiarity with Jesus to where they go, oh, I know you. And they've taken Jesus and they've put him into a little box and they say, this is who he is. And they stuck him right there on the shelf and say, that's the Jesus I know. He's the one that used to live here. He's the one that is the the son of Mary, the brother of James. That's who he is. The problem with that is we do the same thing. We might look at the people of Nazareth and say, oh, this is so sad that they did this. But we do that. I do this is that along the way, we get comfortable with a version of God, with a vision of God, and we think we've pretty much got him figured out. This is who God is, and we can describe him. But the reality is, is God is eternal. God is, is expansive. He goes on and on and on. You can't possibly know right now everything there is to know about God. You just can't. Tomorrow, you have the option of learning more. And the next day more, and the next day more, in fact, all of eternity, we are given eternity because it'll take that long to fully discover the magnitude and the glory of God. So what happens when we put him in a box and put him on a shelf is we're doing just this, we're becoming familiar with God or with our idea of God. And we think we know who he is, so we stop right there. Yeah, I know God, that's who he is. We can't know him fully. And we should be constantly wondering who he is and imagining who he is and studying scripture to know more and more about him. So the first heart that I'm going to challenge you to have, a heart for Jesus, this first heart is that you would have a heart of wonder and curiosity, specifically about God. But the first one is that we would have a heart of wonder and curiosity. We wouldn't be satisfied with our view of God right now, but we would go constantly to scriptures studying, spending time with him, finding out more and more about him because where we are headed with heaven is the idea that we have eternity discovering more about him. Why would we not want to start that now? Don't become so familiar with Jesus because at that point, you no longer even move towards them. When they became familiar, they didn't even come. Even if they were sick, they didn't show up. The reason why you didn't have mighty crowds is because of that very sin. So take a heart. So number one, get a heart of wonder and curiosity. Number two, we're going to jump in at verse 7. And then Jesus, it says, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, um, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and and not put on two tunics. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed them with uh, with oil, many who were sick, and they healed them. The, The... Real powerful thing here. Christina talked about it last week about the authority question about what's happening. This is Christ revealing a little bit more about himself. He's sending out the disciples, so we hear a little bit more about the disciples. But what he does when he gives this authority is an important thing to understand. Elsewhere in scripture, it says that God made man a little lower than the angels. So you have God. Who made both man and angels? So we have a hierarchy here, but you have God, you have angels, and you have man. God made man a little lower than the angels. So man's down here, angels are here, they have a higher authority, but there is God who made both who has the greatest authority. When Jesus does this and gives authority to the disciples, to man, to have authority over the demons, that clearly portrays who he is. It states that he is God. And he has that authority. And then with that authority, not only does he call them, he sends them. And we've talked about this before, but that whole idea of when you live your life with a sense of sentness that God has sent you, you have purpose in your life. The question is whether you do anything with that. Just having purpose doesn't mean you accomplish anything unless with your sentness, you also carry a witness. It's the idea that you go. This is the cool thing that the disciples did is they don't fully understand who Jesus is, but they understand he has authority and they act on that authority that when God sends them, when Jesus sends them, they go. And when they go, God uses them. They might look at it and say, I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed by this. This is, I just, this is me. This is who I am. And I can't do these things. Well, if you think of Moses, remember that story of Moses when he runs into the burning bush? He'd killed an Egyptian. He had to go away for a while. He's, he's uh, out in, uh, in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then one day God's calling him back with a purpose. And as he calls him, he calls him to the burning bush. His voice comes out of the burning bush. And at that point, God stops and says, take off your sandals for you are on holy ground. And Moses says, I can do that. And he kicks off his shoes. And then he says, God says to Moses, now I want you to go into Egypt, go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let all of my people go. And Moses says, do you know who I am? I can't do that. Well, wait a second. You just said you could do what I asked you to do. Well, that was taken off the sandals. Now you're asking for something difficult. And at that point, Moses begins to stutter and to say, whoa, whoa, whoa I can't do this. And his main excuse is, well, you know, do you know who I am? I can't do this. Jesus doesn't, doesn't care about that issue of who you are because he's not planning on doing it on your authority. He's doing it on his authority. And this question about obedience, and this is the second one, have a heart of obedience That that idea of having a heart of obedience is one that stops and says, God might be asking me to do something difficult, to do something hard. He may be pulling me in a direction and I hear his voice. I know he's asking me to do it, but I keep coming up with excuses. I keep coming up with reasons. I keep trying to tell him who I am and why that's not a good idea. But the one that's asking has a much higher authority it's God himself, and the fact that it can be done, what God does in your life is because he's the one doing it. It's not Moses, it's not the disciples, it's not us. It's this Jesus and who he is that allows it to happen. So that's number two. So the first one, get a heart of wonder and curiosity. The second one, get a heart of obedience. Now, before we leave that passage, I want you to look at the very next verse, because I want to tie that, stitch it together. So they've gone out, they're doing this, they're casting out many demons, they're anointing with oil, many who were sick, and they healed them. So that's just cool. Verse 14, King Herod heard about it. I love that little part. King Herod heard about it. That what they're doing, here's the king over this whole region. This king hears about what the disciples are doing. This is one of the dreams for our church, is that we would be faithful. When God calls us, we would have hearts of obedience. And by what we're doing, because God calls us out, that this community would hear about it. Darren talks all the time about that we are here to reveal Christ. That Christ would be revealed to us. Christ would be revealed in us and Christ would be revealed by us. That how we live our lives would actually be a testimony to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to our families. That that Christ would be revealed by us because we were obedient. So here in this story, it just stops and says, and Herod heard about it. I love that. And that's that's that. But then we jump into number three, the third story. This is the story of Herod and John the Baptist. And if you know the story, Herod is, uh, again, another spoiler alert, John the Baptist is about to be beheaded. We're not going to go into the entire story and teach everything that's in it. It's a longer story. And what I would encourage you to do with all of Mark as we're going through it is take time throughout the week and go, you know what, I'm going to read that story more and I'm going to study that and I'm going to try to draw more out of that scripture because there's some really interesting things happening there. But for now, we're going to look at it at that high level about the identity of who Jesus is. That's the question. Who he is, what he reveals about himself, and what others think he is. So this is where this one goes right off the bat. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. He takes his his brother's wife. Now, we're not going to go into the rest of the story. Spoiler alert, John gets beheaded. That's all happening in this story. But now that he hears about what the disciples are doing, he's thinking, this is coming from somebody powerful I wonder if John has risen from the dead and that's who Jesus is. Well, the answer is somebody else thinks it's Elijah. Somebody else thinks it's a prophet of old. But the reality is it's none of the three, right? Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God. And nobody's guessing that. So when we look at this passage, it's an interesting thing, and this one's different than all the rest. So when we look at the stories before and the stories after, they're all about Jesus engaging with the people in the story. Jesus doesn't show up in this story. This is a story about Herod, about his wife, his brother's wife, about John the Baptist. There's all kinds of other things going on. And we've talked about Mark and Sandwiches, that where Mark uses this literary tool where he'll highlight a point, but he'll have something that happens just before and then something that concludes after, but there's something right in the middle. This is one of these stories. This is a story where the, the disciples are sent out and then we get the story of Herod. And then immediately after, then we get the. story story of the disciples coming back. So they're sent out, they come back, right in the middle is this story. So what is it about this story? And it it all centers around Herod and the fact that living his life, he had surrounded himself with pleasure. He had surrounded himself with all the things that would distract him. And he was distracted. He was deluded. He, he be, became disaffected by who Jesus was. And so his life started to get distorted by everything that's happening to him. So when this whole thing is, is he hears about what Jesus is doing, but he doesn't go to meet Jesus. He doesn't even ask Jesus to come to him. He doesn't really care. He actually misinterprets who Jesus might be and thinks it's John the Baptist. And he's afraid of that. But all of that, when we look at Herod, is a striking story. And I'm going to put it to you this way, that, that what happens with this is Herod, his full name is Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. So if you remember when Jesus is born, Herod the Great hears from the wise men that the Messiah is about to be born. The king of the Jews is about to be born. So Herod the Great puts, together, puts to death all those babies that are in the age range that the wise men are saying, the king is born and this is, he's gonna be in this range. So the King Herod kills everybody, all those babies. And that that moment in time, that is Herod Antipas' father. Herod Antipas is already alive. In fact, Herod the Great dies in, in four years after Jesus is born. And so you, and, and Herod Antipas takes over. So we already know he's an adult or at least a young man by the time the wise men show up. Here's my point. This man probably met the wise men. The wise men, at least, were in his palace, in his house. His dad knew the wise men. He had heard from the wise men because this is a major moment in history where all these babies are killed. He knows about the wise men. He has John the Baptist, the messenger that has been proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. He has that messenger in his palace. He's holding him prisoner. And his prime palace that he used is a place called Sepphoris. And Sepphoris is just not even quite four miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And the time that it was built was when Jesus was a carpenter and his dad was a carpenter. And Jesus and his dad would have walked the three miles up to the palace. They, Jesus built Herod's palace. You understand what's happening with this guy the wise men that proclaim it john the baptist the messenger jesus himself builds the palace and he misses it all he misses jesus entirely this is crazy the craziness that comes with this one i will just encourage you to have a heart that is attentive a heart that is looking for the signs that jesus is nearby Jesus is right there. Herod is right here and Herod doesn't move towards him. He doesn't reach out for him. He's not really looking for him because he's distracted by the cares of this world. He's distracted by the things of the flesh. When it describes what he does, when he ends up making the promise to to give John the Baptist's head, he is having his own daughter dance seductively in front of other people. Who does that? Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is deluded and he's distorted in his thinking and he doesn't recognize Jesus. He doesn't know who he is and he lets him go. Where are we at in that? Have we allowed sin to distort our view of truth to get us to a point that we're not interested in Jesus, we're not even attentive to what he's doing? Or maybe, just maybe, if we have even a hint of God being nearby, we would notice it and we would desire to move towards it. So if there's a Bible study and you hear that somebody's going, man, we got the best Bible study going on right now. It is so cool what we're learning. You should want to go to that Bible study. If you hear somebody that is going, man, I had, God just revealed some really cool things to me and and it's just been one of the the most freshest times that I've had with God in a long, long time, you should sit with him and go, what happened? What's going on? If there's somebody in your life that is a a role model and how they love God and you can tell they're walking and abiding with him, you should go and say, can I spend time with you? Can I buy you a cup of coffee? Can I buy you lunch or dinner? That when we get even a hint of God, we should be attentive and move towards them, not move away. Stop with the stuff that's distracting you from God and be attentive. So first one, get a heart of wonder and curiosity. Get a heart of obedience. Get an attentive heart. And again, just try to find one of these that identify where your heart is right now. Number four, we're talking about the feeding of the 5,000 and, um, Let's just jump up to uh, verse 34. Jesus in the boat, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said, So we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in the groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and they were satisfied and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So that's a cool story. We've all heard it probably 20, 30, 40, 100 times. We know this story well. The thing that I wanna point out right off the bat is because Mark has taken, we're taking this slice of what Mark's doing, he's trying to teach who Jesus is. And there's a couple of really fun pictures from the Old Testament that mirror right here in this story. The first one is, he's got a bunch of Jews. There's a big crowd of Jews, and it's already said they're out in a desolate place. They're in the wilderness. Do you know any other stories of a bunch of Jews wandering through their wilderness? Any? Any? And then when they get hungry, what happens? God causes manna to come down. He actually brings this bread-like substance and feeds them in the wilderness, This is not accidental that Jesus takes the Jews and they're out in the wilderness and he feeds them bread. Just like in the Old Testament, that was God who was doing it. And Jesus is laying out the picture and saying, this is God doing it now. This is who he is. But it doesn't stop there. Many of you know, maybe have memorized Psalms 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that passage this is also showing up in this story as well. So not only do we have it in the history of the Jews, but we also are reaching over to the poetic literature and grabbing this Psalms. And in Psalms 23, it lays out a similar way. So I think we've got a slide here that's gonna do just the quick comparison as we go through this. So the first one in verse uh, 23:1, it stops and it says, the Lord is my shepherd. And in In this story, it stops and it says, And Jesus, filled with compassion, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus shows up as a shepherd. So the Lord is my shepherd. And he comes in and they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then it says, I shall not want. And then verse 42, and they all ate and they were satisfied. And they had no want. And then he makes me to lie down in green pastures. And then you're reading this, and this is amazing. And verse 39, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now you're like, oh, yeah, well, grass is green. What's the difference to that? No, Israel is sort of like Southern California. It's a desert land. It's very arid. There's a very short season when there's green grass. And so for him to command, so here's the thing. I used to live in Seattle, Eugenie and I were in Seattle, and then Darren calls one day and says, hey Jeff, would you come down and work for me? I said yes, and so we've been here for a while, but when we came, it was in February, and we showed up into Southern California, we're coming from Seattle where it's green all the time, so green is like, that's normal, now we're in Southern California, and we look at the hills, and in February, they're green. There's these beautiful green hills. It looks like Ireland. And we're like, this is a beautiful place. Ah, what a trickster. That lasted about three more hours until the sun came out. And then it all turned golden and yellow. That's Southern California, right? We know that. The reality it lasts a little longer than that, but not much. That's true with Israel as well. Is that this whole concept, that being out in the wilderness and stopping and to say, I'm going to have you sit down on green grass, is an allusion to Psalms 23. That here he is, he stops and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. He's coming in as their shepherd. I shall not want. He fills them so they're satisfied. He makes them lie down in green pastures. He commanded them. (laughs) to sit down in the green pastures. And then he leads me beside still waters. And it started with that. When he went ashore, they're on the Sea of Galilee, right by the still waters. That's where they are. And then he leads in paths of righteousness. And this one is right between verse 34 and 35. It says, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late. In other words, he taught them for most of the day that he began to teach them many things and then it grew late, means he taught for a long, long time and he began to teach the paths of righteousness. We could go on on this, but that's what's happening. Jesus is grabbing from the Old Testament. He's grabbing the history. He's grabbing the poetic literature and he's saying, do you understand who I am when he does this? So this one, as we look at it, is just get a heart of humility. And you're like, wait, where's humility in that? The humility shows up in what happens with the disciples. So I want you to go back to the passage just for a second. And notice what the disciples say in verse 36. This, uh, just before, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy something to eat. (laughs) that sounds like a great idea, but when you stop and realize that the shepherd, it now has his people and he's actually has compassion for them because they don't have a shepherd. And now here he is, he's teaching them and the disciples, now that they've come together, the disciples solution is send them away. Oh, don't send them away. This is what they need. Jesus is actually trying to meet their needs. And as he's trying to meet their needs, the disciples are trying to send him away. That's where it starts getting backed up a little bit. And then He says, no, no, don't do that. He says, "Um, you give them something to eat. And then they said, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to him? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? And then that rest of the story goes on. But you have to recognize what happens with the disciples is they're given their best ideas and they're not really good ideas. And I don't know if you've ever felt this, but you look at it sometimes and you're doing your stuff and sometimes it doesn't quite turn out right. And the question here is why the disciples didn't come up to Jesus and ask him, what should we do? Instead, their view of Christ is they're telling him what needs to happen. You need to send him away. Ever do that with God? Ever come to him with the way you see the world and the way the next day should go? The way this problem should be solved? And so we come to God with our answer of what he needs to do for us. So this get a heart of humility is to look in the middle of this and realize God already knows what he's doing. He already has a plan. He's already active and involved and he's doing far greater things than we ever would. And the best thing we could do is to simply have a heart of humility. The alternative if you don't like the word humility is you can say have a heart have a heart like a sheep. Because if he's the shepherd, we're the sheep, you can be that. All right. We're gonna keep marching on. Number five. Uh, the fifth heart. So recap, get a heart of wonder and curiosity, get a heart of obedience, get an attentive heart, get a heart of humility. This one, Jesus is uh, right after he sends everybody away, he sends the disciples on the boat. They're going to go over to Bethsaida, and as they go, they run into a headwind, and they're stroking away on the oars, doing everything they can to try to get across, but they're not making good ground. They're not making headway against the wind. Jesus has gone up onto the mountain to pray, and it says that he can see them. Um, When Eugenia and I had a chance to go to Israel, we were able to go to the area that they think the feeding of the 5,000 was. And there's a mountain right there. And we walked up on top of that mountain and it's Mount Arbel. And from Arbel, you literally can look out over the Sea of Galilee. And the thing that struck me more than anything else, knowing this story, and I remember thinking it up there, was I remembered when he saw them out on the lake that I looked at it and went, he totally could see them. They're right there. The lake is not that big. The Sea of Galilee is more of a lake, not a sea. And as he's looking, he can see them. He can see them struggling at the oars. He can see them straining. He can see them not making headway. He can see the challenges they're having. And this picture became all clear to me that when it says that Jesus saw, him, saw them, he knew what they were facing and he continued to pray and eventually came to them And helped. But I don't know how many of you have been in a storm or in a storm right now where things are difficult and you're you're trying to tell God what you want him to do, but in the middle of it, this idea for me to just know that he's aware. I don't need him to answer all everything. If he's got a plan for what's going on in my life, I don't need it to all go away. But I do find comfort in knowing that he's fully aware, that he's watching, that he sees me, that he knows what I'm facing right now. And that is true for each of us. That our ability to stop and say, God, I am so glad that you can see me, that you know I'm going through it. And then Jesus comes and walks on water. And he comes by. And there's another little part of how he reveals who he is in this. And I'm going to read it. Verse 46. He saw that they were making headway painfully. For the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him were terrified, but immediately spoke to him and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. There's two things that happen in this passage right there. The first one, you probably have a question mark. What do you mean he meant to pass them by? (laughs) What is that? Here they are, they're having a hard time in the boat. And what's Jesus, he's just gonna, I'm just gonna pass by. So they're out there um, rowing along. And as they're going along, straining away at the oars Jesus is like hey guys keep it up we're almost there and then he just keeps on walking and then you almost wonder you know like could he have gone another way and they would have never seen him or did he need to be seen the reason why he walked right by them was because he wanted to be seen he wanted them to see him And you can even imagine he might have walked a couple times by, like they're not looking, their heads are down. I just got to keep going. That's all conjecture. We don't know any of that. But what we know next is this line that it says he meant to pass them by doesn't make sense. It doesn't until you stop and realize that that phrase That God passes by shows up in other points in the Old Testament. That Moses, when he wanted to see God's glory, God literally uses this phrase. You stay in the cleft of the rock so that when I pass by, then you can't see my face or you'll die. But you'll be able to see part of my glory. But God passed by. And then the same thing with Elijah, after the fire comes down, when Elijah calls down fire from heaven, he goes and he hides out in a cave for a while and God comes and interacts to refresh him. And in that part, it says that the glory of God passed by. And this is a phrase that Jesus is is doing right here. He meant to pass by. What that means is he meant to show his glory. And if you don't think that that's right, if you think that's a stretch, understand that what they're looking at is there's a man walking on water, that's unnatural. This is incredible. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to reveal to them. I am incredible. I am God himself. I have power over all of nature. I have power over the spiritual realm. I am God. He meant to pass by. He meant to show them that glory and they are stunned, they're shocked, they're frightened. Um, One of the translations literally says they screamed, just screamed out because they saw and didn't know what to do with that. So this one is what happens next. When we talk about getting a heart, I want you to see what happens next. So he's going along, they, they cry out and he says, take heart, it is I. And what he's using there in the Greek is the word I am that when, it, when God uses that term to define himself, it is I am. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with him and the wind ceased. So as silly as that is, it's the idea, the cliche is get him in your boat. Get him in your boat. Don't be afraid of him out there of what he might do. Put him in the boat with you because that's when you have the best scenario ever that the, the, the creator of the world, the savior, your Lord, your shepherd is in the boat with you. That's what you want more than anything else. If you're facing something scary, if you're facing something terrifying, having Jesus next to you in the boat is the thing that brings you peace. So the, the fifth one is get a heart of peace. Get a heart of peace. And the way to do that is get Jesus in your boat. Get him in your life, have him next to you. That's where Jesus belongs. So cool things that point out who Jesus is, cool things that are happening there throughout scripture. Um, Last one, this very last passage, uh, when they had crossed over, this is verse 53. So they they got back, so he's in the boat, they finally get to land, they don't make it to Bethsaida, they end up at Gennesaret. But as they are in Gennesaret and they moor to the shore, when they got out of the boat, the, the people immediately recognized him and ran. And they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. I love this. We start with people that recognize Jesus, and we finish with people who recognize Jesus. The beginning one was where we tried to put God in a box and then there was no draw to even seek God out for what he might be able to do in their life. The second one is where they recognize him and the first thing they do is they run to the people they know who are hurting and broken and suffering. They go to their friends, they go to their family, they go to the people that are suffering and they grab them and it says they carried their beds to Jesus, that these, this, what's happening is when they see Jesus as he is, they know what he's capable of doing. They know that he can heal. They know that they, he can save them. And so they go and bring others to Jesus. This should be a litmus test for all of us. If we think we've got a clear picture of who God is, the question is, how many people are you bringing to Jesus? Jesus. How many people are you inviting to church? How many people are you just in your prayer time lifting up to Jesus and going, my heart hurts, Jesus, I want to bring these people to you. Are you concerned about others, knowing who Jesus is, that he can help those people you care about? Do you bring them together? That's what happens in this story. It's a beautiful picture of what happens when we start to recognize who Jesus is. And so this last one is get a heart that knows him. When you know Jesus, you begin to act different. What we believe about God affects our actions. It affects what we do. What we believe about God affects our obedience. It affects how we treat others. And so what we believe about God affects others. So then get to know God. Get a heart that knows him. Get a heart of wonder and curiosity, get a heart of obedience, get an attentive heart, get a heart of humility, get a heart of peace, get a heart that knows God. And if you're going to pick one, pick one that is God's using to speak to your heart and do that thing. I want to read um, just something that I wrote. Uh, the The bottom line is when I study a passage, oftentimes there's other things stirring in me. And so I I tend to write things that are sort of like poetry, but not, I don't know what you call it. You're stuck. You're going to have to listen to it. So here we go. Who Jesus is matters. Even who you think Jesus is matters. But the idea that Jesus thinks of you matters most. He thought of you before there even was a you, a you who could even think. Before the foundations of the earth, you were on his mind. You may have no idea who Jesus is, but he knows who you are, and that matters. And just because he thought you into existence, not just because he thought you into existence, though you are his idea, not just because you are alive, even how you breathe, his idea. But that a holy, righteous, eternal God desires a relationship with a sinful, broken human, that's the idea where his thinking of you matters most. He is known for his healing. He's known for his sermons. He is known for his friendship with beggars and sinners. And even after 2,000 years since he physically walked this earth, he is still known. The question is whether you know him. Of course, of course he would feed the 5,000. Why wouldn't he? He would bring down bread from heaven like manna. It's almost like he had seen that done before. He fed them. He taught them. And they thought, he's a good teacher. Uh, But he's so much more than that. Some thought he was a powerful healer. He put on a good show, but this wasn't a trick. You just ask the leper, ask the blind, ask the sick. Then he goes and walks on water. He calms the waves. He commands the winds. Who can do that? Only the one who has authority over the physical laws of nature, over all of creation, the same one who has authority over the spiritual laws too. He saw that they were struggling against the wind and he came to them. And the one who walks on water gets into their boat. And the beginning, from the beginning of time, this is a God who has always moved towards us. In the garden after Adam and Eve had sinned, it was God who came and found them. It was God who clothed them. Even when we turn our back on him, Even when we walk away, God still chooses to send his son. And he is here today. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all already thinking of you. Who you think of Jesus matters. But for all eternity, it will always be the idea that Jesus thought of you first that matters most. And I wonder if you think of him. And I wonder if you know him. And I wonder if you run to him. Because in the end, that matters. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you thought of us, that you created us. And I thank you that even in our brokenness, you were already moving towards us to help us in our storms. But Lord, as we pray even today of uh, some people don't fully understand who you are. I don't. I would ask, Lord, that you would continue to expand my view of you, that you would help me to see you as far greater, far more eternal, far more expansive than I could ever imagine. And Lord, that ultimately that I would have a heart, a heart of peace, a heart of humility, but a heart that would long to know you. Lord, allow us to see more of you, to have more of you in our life, that we might be ones that run to get the others, to share you with others, that they may too get to know you. And we ask these things in your name, amen.